for those that are separated from your love, who have not come to embrace you as Lord and Savior, who have not come to see in you genuinely in the right sense of the word the love of their life, I pray that you'd open their eyes to see this love and that they would embrace it today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Love is love. But what is love? We recognize love is love as a political statement these days. A rallying cry to protect human rights and sexual freedoms. Love is love is shorthand now for society's sense of obligation to permit and support virtually any sensual act between consenting adults. Since love is love, the thinking goes, anyone who feels love must feel free to pursue whatever passion they feel. Whatever it is, however it's defined in this moment. But what we must ask is what is love? Its expansive use makes it pretty hard to define, doesn't it? We love candy and we love pets and ideas. We love a favorite food and a favorite team and a favorite color. We love a book, a chair. We love mountains and lakes and sunsets. And then we get into the realm of human relationships and we use the same word there. Love can be used to describe loyal devotion to someone or a sentimental feeling. It is used with a romantic meaning, an erotic meaning, an illicit meaning. What is love? We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and the classic treatment of this topic in the scriptures and what we find ironic is that Paul never defines it. Rather, he describes it. Love's activity, its function, its priceless eternal worth. But as we delve into chapter 13, we need to consider that Paul does not break out his pen and write a free-floating poem here. In chapter 12, he describes the church as a body, with each individual member as a vital part of that body. No member can say, the body does not need me. And no member can say, I do not need the body. We are spirit-baptized members of Christ's body, sovereignly assigned a place in that body so that we will use our diverse gifts in interdependent unity with one another. Interdependent unity of purpose. We're to pour out our service for the maturity and the health of the entire assembly. What will fuel that unity? What will enable the use of our spiritual gifts to strengthen and deepen the assembly? Well, I I doubt the Corinthian church saw themselves this way, but Paul is steering them to see that their interest in church unity was abysmal. And their definition of spiritual health was atrocious. Some of the members were gifted by God to speak languages they did not know or understand. By the power of the Spirit to speak out in such a language in the assembly, this bore clear, unmistakable evidence of the Holy Spirit's empowerment in their midst. 
And the Corinthians took this experience to indicate that they were indeed people of the Spirit, probably saw themselves as people who lived on something of a higher spiritual plane. Look at the evidence of this in our lives. Paul understood that self-serving pride was driving their use of gifts, their behavior in the church. And that was hindering the spiritual growth of the church. This is why they were divided and why there was so much sensuality. There was an evidence of the presence of the Spirit as they spoke in tongues, for instance. These same people were struggling with divisions and deep sinful sensuality on many levels. So Paul is steering them toward a goal. Their experience indicated to them that they were people of the Spirit. But as they spoke out in tongues in their gatherings, creating a chaotic atmosphere, Paul saw self-serving pride. And this is how we arrive at chapter 13. What is it that will fuel the unity that the diversity of gifts are to produce in the assembly? It is love. It is love for one another, seeing one another in that light, and then describing that excellent way, chapter 12 and verse 31. It was well and good that the Corinthians were tapping the powers of the kingdom in the expression of their gifts. Paul says nothing against this, but... He points them higher yet. That would have been hard for them to grasp. What do you mean higher? What do you mean greater? What could be greater than what we're experiencing here? We are people of the Spirit. He points them higher. And out of this gritty spiritual counsel in the trenches of a divided church emerges this classic statement on Christian love. We see, first of all, in chapter 13, the utter necessity of love. Even if we perform miraculous powers, we profit nothing if we lack love for one another. Verse 1 of chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is exhibit A. Paul refers here to the miraculous gift of tongues, I believe, when he speaks of it here in verse 1, the ability to speak fluently in a language that one does not at all understand. We don't know if angels have their own language, but if they do have their own language, it's not gibberish. It's not ecstasy that just says syllables. It's a decipherable language, though we may not be able to decipher it. Sidebar on that. He says here, if I speak with the tongues of angels. It's quite a stretch, I think, to say that Paul is encouraging believers to speak in private devotion to God in some angelic language. Neither here nor elsewhere in the Bible is there any evidence of instruction to that end or any other mention of it. That notion must be read into the text here. It's not going to be read out of it. He's probably just speaking figuratively when he says you could speak in the tongues of angels. But let's assume 
that angels have a decipherable language distinct unto themselves. They're clearly bilingual because whenever they speak to somebody in the Bible, they're always speaking in a language the person understands. But let's say that they do have that language. This verse is not encouraging us to speak in that language. We could differ on that with others, but that's certainly not the instruction here. What he is looking at is love. Though I speak all the tongues of men, though I speak every language without studying it, and even if I would speak an angelic tongue and have not love, it profits me nothing. Now remember the Corinthians were taking great pride in that ability to speak in an unknown language in the assembly. They were standing up in chaotic ways and speaking out and no one understanding what they were saying, but it was indeed an evidence of the Spirit of God. But Paul says that experience of divine power is itself of utterly no value to you if you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And where he's moving, we understand as he gets to chapter 14, is going to say that that disruptive, chaotic self-presentation of tongues is not building up the assembly, is not helping the church. Love will do what is best for each individual, for the assembly as a whole. So that's where he's taking them. But first, noisy gong, clanging cymbal, you're just a bunch of noise. There's no profit in it. But exhibit B, verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I'm profited nothing. Nothing comes of it. I'm just sound. If it's tongues, and if it's faith that can even remove mountains, it's nothing. It means nothing, the experience itself. Mysteries and knowledge describe avenues of divine revelation. We don't know exactly how they looked, but they were receiving divine revelation to learn what could not be discerned by human investigation. And again, I think he speaks with hyperbole, overstatement. If I had all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith, the faith that could take a mountain and move it, if I could do that, imagine the people that show up at church, imagine the people that would be hitting you up to write a book and do a video series, if you could, with faith, move a mountain. And Paul says, don't be taken in by the phenomenal. Without love, even that is useless. It gets you not one inch closer to God if it's not done in love for others. So even if I had a gift of faith that could heal anybody that I touched, that could move a mountain, Without love, all of these spiritual powers, all of these marvelous experiences would do me no good if I don't have love for the people communing at the Lord's table with me. Chapter 11. So even if we perform miraculous powers, we profit nothing we lack, if we lack love for others. Secondly, even if we make ultimate sacrifices, we profit nothing if we lack love for others. Verse 3, if I give away all that I have... And if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Think of it. I could sacrifice everything that I own, divide it up into small portions, 
and deliver those portions over to a massive number of people. And I've helped some people, but I've gained nothing if it's not done in love. Without love for those that I supply, for those that I even die for. Giving a body to be burned, I think, is, has the idea not of martyrdom. That's a later uh, form of execution. But I think that giving my body to be burned is, for instance, running into a burning building and dying in the process of saving people. I can do something like that, but if it's for self, I gain nothing. If it, does not, if it is not produced by love. Love for others is utterly necessary for every work of service that we perform for Christ. Whatever we do that is for self-promotion is useless. Now, again, where's Paul pushing here? You think you're close to God because you can stand up and speak in a language that you've not studied and don't understand. It is indeed an evidence of the presence of the Spirit, His empowering work in our life as a church. But you think you're tapping the heavenly realm and thus are somehow special to the Lord. But without love for your brothers and sisters, those that you gather around the table, remembering again chapter 11, without love for them, What you're doing is meaningless. It's a waste of time. Only as you express or utilize any spiritual gift with love for those that you serve, doing what is best for them, giving yourself away for what is useful for the growth of the church, then it's of no value. It's utterly, love is utterly necessary in all that we do. Well, Paul, what do you mean by love? What does that look like? How must I then relate to the church? He now lays out in verses 4 through 7 the true characteristics of love. A few comments before we work our way through the list. First, before looking at these characteristics, the whole list is described with action verbs. Love does things. It acts in the interest of others. Secondly, not one verb on this list is a feeling. True love always feels. It always feels. But it always and primarily, more than feeling, more than emotion, is action. It is deed in the direction of others. So it is, it has feelings. It will always have feelings. But those feelings do not drive it. Thirdly, you ready for this? Virtue lists can put Christians to sleep. All right, so get ready. Here we go. I've done this before, and I've learned that virtue lists can put people to sleep. I'm not going to illustrate each of these points. I'm not going to try to warm them up in some way. We've got to walk through them piece by piece, Let's stay awake and know that in some sense here, as we go through word by word, that we test ourselves and ask, am I a believer of love? Do I evidence love in my life? Verse 4, what is he talking about? Here it is, love is patient. The Greek word does not mean laid back and passive or even simply patient as we commonly use the word. 
The Greek word makrothumia speaks of a steadfast spirit that refuses to give up. Love displays a steadfast spirit that endures the wrongs that others commit against us, patiently resisting resentment and retaliatory responses. Love guards us from exploding in anger, seething in bitterness, seeking revenge, or running away from others. This virtue looks long and does not get knocked off its feet. Let me say pointedly that the only way anyone stays in a church for years is with some measure of makrothumia. Whatever that is, that long-suffering, enduring patience, that willingness to not be knocked off our feet by offense or harm is absolutely essential to endure. Without it, a Christian is fairly pre-programmed to move from church to church to church. Love is kind. Love acts thoughtfully toward others. Love seeks not to use others, but to see life from their perspective and then to act in beneficial and thoughtful ways. It is kind. It does not envy. Love refuses to compare oneself with others in a way that fuels resentment. It does not grow bitter because of what someone else does or how someone else is honored or given opportunity. Love will not begrudge others the blessing that God has sovereignly assigned to them. It does not boast. Loving people do not go out of their way to gain attention or seek opportunities to promote themselves. Love does not seek the limelight or broker in self-promoting dialogue. It is not arrogant. Love does not have a big head. It is humble, never brash, never condescending. It does not belittle others to make oneself look smart or funny or strong. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. The Greek word speaks of behavior that is indecent or shameful, that lacks tact or respect. Love is not overly blunt. It is not overly harsh or rough with others. Love does not use crass humor or make others cringe. It does not insist on its own way. In appropriate ways, love knows how to back down. It is willing to yield the way to others. There are ways to do this that are unloving. Love knows when to lead. It knows when to hold its ground. But it also knows how to stay in its lane and how to defer to others. It is not irritable. And it doesn't bristle easily. It is not touchy or quick-tempered or short with others. It is not resentful. This Greek word was used in accounting to describe entering records on a ledger. It's a very descriptive word, and we miss it a bit by the idea of resentful. But think of it in, the, in the, this picture. It doesn't keep a ledger of wrongs. We can find that fairly natural in our sin. Like there's this, this ledger that we pull out, and that person now adds this to my list. They've done this wrong. And what do we do when we open up that ledger, we open up that book, and we record the next offense? It allows us to refresh the last ones, to remember them, to keep it alive, to keep saying, this person just keeps piling up wrongs. 
Love doesn't do that. It just lets it go. It doesn't refresh that record. So maybe picture it this way. You're, there's, a, there's a lake and a very narrow beachfront and woods behind. And you have a bonfire on that little strip of sand and the sparks are driven by the wind into the lake and as they hit the lake, they the sparks just flying up and just dropping in the lake. It's quenched. That's this word. It just quenches the wrongs that are done. It doesn't record them and keep them alive. But if the wind blows the other way, what can happen? The sparks go with that line of woods that's alongside the lake and catch fire and burn. How do you handle those that harm you? How do you handle those who irritate and cross paths? Do we pull out the ledger and record it or do we quench it? That's what love does. Verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It does not rejoice when someone does wrong because it proves their weakness. There they go, look at that. Or confirms your poor opinion of them. Yep, that's what I expected. We're rejoicing that they tripped and fell, that they did wrong morally. It might be the way we look at a city. It might be the way we look at an individual. Love does not say, there they go again. It speaks against that pleasure that we might find in a bad report. Love finds no glee with some, when someone gets what they deserve. Verse 7, love bears all things. That is, love is courageous. It has big shoulders that can bear weight. It does not easily say, I've had enough of you. It believes all things. This is not gullibility or unreasoning optimism. It means that love refuses, as one has put it, refuses to yield to suspicion and doubt. It's going to choose, love is going to choose to believe the best and not give way to suspicion. It believes all things. It hopes all things. Love puts its trust in God and his promises such that it never can despair. Love is hopeful, it is realistic, but always leaning optimistically, not pessimistically. It endures all things. Love fuels endurance. It allows us to bear up under challenging circumstances and to plow forward. Love is full of fortitude. It has a tenacity that is buoyed by the future promises of God. So Paul does not define love. He describes what it does. He describes how it's oriented to life and others. And perhaps the closest that the Bible gets to a definition of what love actually is is 1 John 3 and verse 16, along with the portion of chapter 4 that we read here earlier this morning. But 1 John 3, 16 says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Do you see again the action This is how we know love. Christ laid down his life in behalf of us. Love is something we come to know more than we even can define. When defining love, John does not turn to a dictionary. 
when defining love, John looks at the cross and says, there it is. That is love. He points to the cross and says, look there. Hanging on that cross in your place, the Lamb of God laying down his life. Leaving the splendors of heaven, taking on the trials of this world, standing in your place, bearing your iniquity on that cross. That is love. We may struggle to define it, but we can look right at it. That is love. A love that we see and a love that we know. And once we do, it is a love that transforms how we relate to others and to God. Have you embraced that love of Christ for you? Not earned it. You can't. But have you come to see it? To recognize that the epitome of love in this world is Christ Jesus bearing the weight and the cost of sin. I encourage you, come to that cross. Come to that Savior. Embrace Him as the one who forgives and loves eternally. You will then begin to know what love is. Paul now drives home his point as he strives to counsel the church away from their self-promoting antics in the assembly and speaks here now of the eternal permanence of love. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. The spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues and revelatory knowledge will pass away. They are temporal endowments of the Spirit. But these amazing spiritual gifts come with a shelf life. Love does not. Love endures forever. Love will flow unceasingly and eternally in heaven and on the new earth. It will flow unceasingly and eternally as it always has between the triune members of the Godhead. But it will also flow unceasingly and eternally between those who are the redeemed and know the Lord. Tongues will cease. They are temporary gifts that will cease. It's synonymous, I think, here with pass away. Notice verse 8. Prophecies will pass away Tongues will cease. Knowledge will pass away. I would take cease as just a synonym to pass away. Some try to make a special case out of that word. I don't think it's possible. But at any rate, at verse 9, Paul now expands on the temporal nature of the spiritual gifts. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Revelatory knowledge, that is receiving revelation from God, revelatory prophecies are partial in nature. The revelatory gifts provided only a partial perspective on God's truth. This incompleteness is a necessary characteristic of life in this age which is passing away. But the perfect, verse 10, will displace the partial. The perfect will displace it. 
The fullness of the age to come will displace what is now incomplete. What is the perfect that will displace the partial? Let's return to that question in a few moments. But let's carry on where he is here at verse 11 with an illustration. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He compares here two eras of a person's life. There is childhood when knowledge is limited, and there is adulthood when one sees much more fully. Paul adds a second illustration, which I think synchronizes with verse 11. If we overthink verse 11, we may think in terms of all he's pointing to is a stage of maturity on the part of the church, historically. But I think verse 12 fits as a second illustration right with verse 11. And it's not about maturity. But, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I know fully, even as I have been fully known. We're not tracking here on easy stuff, okay? Let's, let's recognize that. Verses 10 through 12 are not an easy text to understand. They're Bible. It's what Paul wrote. And so we need to give it our attention. And we'll not all agree on how we work these matters out. But let's just start here with verse 12 and say that mirrors in the ancient world were made of polished metal. So they weren't anything like the clarity that we have with mirrors in our day. They also did not have, the, the Corinthians didn't have photography. They didn't have videography. They didn't have mirrors like we have them. This is really weird for us to think about. You realize in the ancient world, these people in this church never saw themselves clearly, ever. They couldn't. You couldn't do it. But as they looked at other people, they knew what clear vision was. And they recognize, I can never see myself that way. The mirrors weren't that clear. No photography, no videography. That, you, you never really could see yourself. But notice now the words, now and then. Verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Even as I have been fully known. See, that, that helps us from their standpoint to recognize I've been seen by others in my life, but I've never really seen my own face clearly. But in the way that I see the face of others, or ultimately the way that God sees me, I will one day see that same way. Then, compared to now. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. He winds it all up with this, these three, but the greatest of these is love. There's great debate as to whether or not faith and hope last forever. They obviously abide now. Do they last forever? I think Romans 8, 24 is somewhat decisive where it says, now hope that is seen is not hope. For Who hopes for what he sees? The faith becomes sight. 
So this, I think, tips the scales, for me at least, toward faith and hope being operative now, but ending when we enter into eternity. An argument can be made that faith and hope endure forever in one sense in God, as we trust in God eternally. But the defense, I, I think the defense of that view seems a bit forced. Faith is being assured of what's not here yet. Hope is looking forward to what God has promised but is not seen. So when faith and hope are realized in the presence of Christ, they will be unnecessary. The faith will become sight. The hope will be realized. Love, forever there. It will always abide. The day is coming. The day is coming when we will meet Jesus face to face. And on that day, our faith will be sight and our hope will be forever realized. But this is a passage of theological conundrums. So let me land on a little bit of that and just go for week number two here where I differ with all kinds of you. That's okay. You got it. I'm the one on the front here at the moment, so I got to tell you what I think. But here we go. Just to think through what is this face-to-face and perfect thing. When the perfect comes, then, see that verse 10, when the perfect comes, verse 12, then we will see face-to-face. It's common among cessationists, the position that I took last week, to argue that the perfect is the completed New Testament. That when all of the revelation recorded in written scripture is complete, then at that point, these miraculous gifts that are revelatory are no longer needed and will pass away. But to give just a few brief points, first of all, I'll say this view makes perfect sense, no pun intended. Revelatory knowledge is partial. The completion of the inerrant written word of God completes the knowledge that we need for life and godliness. I wholly believe that. I would not take the perfect to refer to the completion of the New Testament for several reasons. First, if Paul speaks of the completed canon, that's the finish of the New Testament, the canon. If he speaks of the completed canon, why so cryptically? Why not say when the last apostle receives the last revelation or something of the like? Not a strong argument, but secondly... Paul did not live to see the canon completed. Yet he says, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. He will himself participate in the time of full knowledge, and he did not live to see the completion of the New Testament. So I don't think Paul was mistaken there when he speaks as if he would live to the completion of the New Testament. I'm not certain that Paul would even know there would be such a day, necessarily. I think if you looked into the future and said, here's where it's going, he would certainly get that. In fact, I think he probably could say when the last apostle dies, 
That will be the last revelatory word in the written text of Scripture. But I'm not sure that he's thinking here of canon or that he did. Number three, Paul was taught by Christ himself in Galatians 1 and verse 12. It's hard to imagine Paul equating that training in the presence of Christ as seeing dimly then the scriptures are completed and now we see clearly. I think his training at the foot of Christ himself was not dim training or dim knowledge. Number four, face to face as that phrase is used in the Old Testament is always used of personal encounters with people but primarily here with God. So Exodus 33 and verse 11, Moses spoke with God face to face. In Deuteronomy 5, 4, God spoke with Israel face to face. In Judges chapter 6 and verse 22, Gideon saw the angel of the Lord face to face. In Revelation 22, 3 and 4, the servants of the Lamb will see the Lamb on his throne and see his face. So seeing face to face in verse 12 I think refers to seeing Christ, to entering his presence in eternity. So I do not read the perfect in verse 10 to speak of any specific thing, but rather to state the principle that perfection displaces whatever is partial or incomplete. And in that sense, certainly the completed canon displaces the revelatory words. I would put that back to Ephesians 2 and say that the New Testament church is founded on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles' work ended for a time, and the prophets with that. So I certainly hold to the completed canon and the significance, but the phrase face-to-face, I think, fits much better with the idea of seeing Christ. So... um, I would understand face-to-face to mean what Augustine said, and that is that sight of God whereby we shall contemplate the substance of God unchangeable and invisible with human eyes. That sight of God whereby we shall contemplate the substance of God unchangeable and invisible with human eyes. And that's a good place to end, to come out of the theological constructs and differences of opinion to come to this good, good place. It is good to end with the contemplation that love will be the very air that we breathe throughout all eternity. On that day, we will celebrate not some grand spiritual experience that we had here above all else, but we will celebrate the love of God in Christ to sinners We will participate in the love that flows between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and has flowed eternally from the three persons of the triune being. And we will enter into that relational love with everyone that is in eternity with us that knows the Lord. And when we think of defining love, when we think of what that love will be like as it flows without limitation and without the presence of sin... What we're looking at in verses 4 through 7 is the face of Jesus. We're seeing it dimly, but we're seeing it. Verses 4 through 7 are personified in Christ. 
If we had had the privilege of being on earth, in some ways we're more privileged, but if we'd had the privilege of being on earth when Jesus was alive and ministering, and somebody said, what was he like? You could well say he was patient. He was kind. There was no envy or boasting. He was not arrogant. He was not rude. He never insisted on his own way. He was not irritable or resentful. God knows he could have been with us. He wasn't. He always rejoiced in what was true and right and good. He held up under all things, even the cross. He went to that cross in love, bearing the weight of our sin without complaint, with great grief, with great sorrow of heart, with great severity in the trial, but with no misgivings. He believed, he hoped, he endured. Right to the point till he said, it is finished. Love never ends. It may be hard to define, but we see it and know it in the face of Christ, whom though we do not yet see, we strangely love and will love for all eternity. That love, dimly seen now, is to be displayed in the way that we relate to the Lord and in the way that we relate to one another in the assembly. Not because we see things all the same way. Not because we never disagree. Not because we don't sometimes track in different directions and make different decisions. But because the love of Christ binds us to Him and therefore to one another. We're here not for us. We're here for his cause. To press it forward, to magnify his name, and to demonstrate to a world that does not know what love is. What love is. Lord, help us. We need to learn to love. There's nobody here who looks at these characteristics and says, I got that figured out. I'm pretty good. We fall very short. And yet we thank you for for your forgiving grace. We thank you for the example of Christ. We praise you for the conviction of the Spirit. I pray that whatever conviction has taken place here or may indeed continue to take place as we leave this place, may we pause here to thank you for the love that you have displayed to us in Christ. And may we learn to display that love to one another. May it be said of us by your grace and by your sanctifying power over the length and breadth of our days that these verses characterize our spirit. 